ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम विष्णु बनाय कृष्ण पृष्ठाय भूतदे श्रीमाते भक्तिवदंत स्वामी नमने नमस्ते सारस्वत देव गौरवाणी प्रसारणे निर्विशेष शून्यवाणी पाश्चात्यदेशने श्रीकृष्ण चैतन्य प्रभु नचनंद श्रीअद्वैत गदाधार शिवश्री गौरवाक्षवृंद हरे कृष्ण हरे कृष्ण 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 हरे 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 राम हरे राम 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 हरे हरे Reading from Shrimad Bhagavatam Canto 4, Chapter 28, Verse 39. Aste stana evai katra devyam varshasatam stirha vasudeve bhagavati nanyadved odvahan ratim. Aste remains stanu immovable, eva like a katra in one place, divyam of the demigods, varsha years satam one hundred, stira steady, avasudeve unto Lord Krishna. Bhagavati, supreme personality of Godhead, na, not, anyat, anything else, Veda, did know, udvahan, possessing, ratim, attraction. Translation: In this way, he stayed immovable in one place for one hundred years by the calculations of the demigods. After this time, he developed pure devotional attraction for Krishna, the supreme personality of Godhead, and remained fixed in that position. Purport: Bahunam Janmanam Ante Gyanavan Mam Prapadyate Vasudeva Sarvam Iti Samahatma Sudurlaba. After many births and deaths, he who is actually in knowledge surrenders unto me. Knowing me to be the cause of all causes and all that is, such a great soul is very rare. Vasudeva, the supreme personality of Godhead, Krishna, is everything, and one who knows this is the greatest of all transcendentalists. It is stated in Bhagavad Gita that one realizes this after many, many births. This is also confirmed in this verse with the words "Divyam of Varshasatam." One hundred years, according to the calculation of the demigods, according to the calculation of the demigods, one day, twelve hours, is equal to six months on Earth. A hundred years of the demigods would equal thirty-six thousand Earth years. Thus, King Malayadvaja executed austerities and penances for thirty-six thousand years. <coughs> After this time, he became fixed in the devotional service of the Lord. To live on earth for so many years, one has to take birth 
many times. This confirms the conclusion of Krishna. To come to the conclusion of Krishna consciousness and remain fixed in the realization that Krishna is everything, as well as render service under Krishna, are characteristics of the perfectional stage. As stated in Chaitanya Charitamrita, Krishna Bhakti Koile Sarvakarma Kritahoy. When one comes to the conclusion that Krishna is everything by worshipping or by rendering devotional service unto Krishna, one actually becomes perfect in all respects. Not only must one come to the conclusion that Krishna is everything, but he must remain fixed in this realization. This is the highest perfection of life, and it is this perfection that King Malayadvaja attained at the end. Translation in this way, he stayed immovable in one place for 100 years by the calculation of the demigods. After this time, he developed pure devotional attraction for Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and remained fixed in that position. So, of course, this whole story is allegorical, not historical, but um, the Activities of King Malayadvaja and his wife are uh, very uh, significant. They teach us uh, many important points. Uh, one, of course, was that uh, uh, the wife was actually previously Paranjana. Uh, and after he died, because he was thinking of his wife, he became a woman. And then he married this king. And then finally after that, uh, it got perfection like the king. So uh, that illustrates the fact that uh, we have to think very carefully about, or we have to be careful of what we think of. (laughs) So uh, he thought of his wife, he became a woman. Bharat Maharaj thought of a deer when he was dying, and he became a deer. Uh, So uh, the thought at death... uh, is very important. But of course, uh, in general, the thought at death indicates uh, the object of attraction that one has. So because Bharat Maharaj was attracted to the deer uh, so much that he forgot to worship the Lord, naturally when he died he was thinking of the deer rather than the Lord because he had developed that attraction and absorption in the deer. And similarly, Puranjana, um, of course, he wasn't spiritual, really, uh, and he was absorbed in his wife, so therefore he thought of his wife when he died, and then he became a woman in his next life. So uh, This shows that we have to be careful of what we concentrate on in our life, what we become attracted to in our life, uh, because this will lead us to our next body. And uh, the thought at death is merely an indication of what we're attached to in life. Ah, So in general, of course, people die. And throughout their life, they have been developing many sorts of attractions. And of those, usually one is very prominent. And usually it's a person, not a thing. (laughs) Of course, some people are so stubborn, they'll be thinking of money, money, money when they die or something like that. But most people will probably be thinking of a person. They may be thinking positively or negatively of a person, uh, a person they like or a person they hate or the person they fear. 
In the case of Kamsa, he feared Krishna. And that was his <laughs> thought when he was dying, fear. Uh, and many demons, uh, they think of Krishna in hatred when they die. Uh, like Hranikasipu uh, or Ravana or Shishupala, they think in hatred of the Lord. Of course, even then, because it's the Lord, they get some benefit. So when Shishupala thought of Krishna, then he attained Krishna. He became a, a you know, resident of Vaikuntha as a result. So that's, of course, an exceptional case. Uh, so normally the demons don't think of the Supreme Lord one way or the other, even hatred. They just uh, think of some material thing. <laughs> but in exceptional cases, they have extreme hatred of the Lord. Uh, so in the case of Krishna, that helps them uh, because they become absorbed in Krishna. So then they get purified by that thought, even if it's in hatred. Uh. Uh, but so more likely people are absorbed in something they're attracted to in life. Uh, and usually that attraction is a person. <laughs> so therefore, uh, they become, they take a material body because of that. Whether it is man or woman, they become uh, another body in this material world. And hopefully a human being body at that. Uh, so this of course is great misfortune in one sense because... Uh, we're trying to get out of the material world and not get a material body at all and go to the spiritual world and serve Krishna. So if we think of a material person, then we attain a material body. Uh, so the process of bhakti is to transfer our attraction from a material person to a spiritual person. So it is not so difficult in one sense because... Uh, very fortunately, Krishna looks like a human being, more or less. <laughs> so if we're attracted to human beings, we can be attracted to a very beautiful human being, Krishna. Huh? And uh, we can, uh, in this way, purify ourselves and uh, get rid of our material body and get a spiritual body. Huh? So the process of bhakti is not so difficult in that sense, that uh, we simply have to change the object of our attraction from a material person to a spiritual person. Uh, however, for some people, that is very difficult. Because they'll think, if I'm going to practice spiritual life, I cannot think of anything material and forms are material, therefore I cannot think of any form if I want to be spiritual. So this is what impersonalism does. You cannot concentrate on a, f a material form and get a spiritual result. And therefore you have to give up material form. Uh, um, but that's difficult to do. So even the impersonalists encourage people to worship forms, like David does. And thus we have the uh, worship of Shiva and Durga and Ganesh and Surya and Vishnu, recommended by impersonalists. But these are material forms, and they have a temporary value to help us concentrate and purify ourselves until we get steady in sattva gun. When we do that, then we go further and we give up those forms completely and we concentrate on Brahman, which is difficult to do because there's no form. But if you're in sattva, then if you struggle and struggle and struggle, you can attain that. Even so, Krishna says, this is very difficult. In Bhagavad Gita chapter 12, Arjuna asks Krishna, which should I concentrate on, the impersonal Brahman or your personal form? 
And Krishna says, well, if you concentrate on the impersonal Brahman, it is very difficult. It's full of suffering uh, because we have bodies here and it's difficult to concentrate on something without a form. So it is very, very difficult. Uh, so better and easier is to concentrate on my personal form. Easier. And we get a higher result. So, uh, therefore, uh, if we concentrate on a spiritual form of the Lord, uh, then we get the highest result of all. So, uh, the king was uh, very intelligent uh, because he concentrated on the form of the Lord. It says here, Vasudeva Bhagavati. He concentrated on Bhagavan, Vasudeva. So he concentrated on the attractive form of the Lord. Uh, and he did so uh, after a hundred devata years, which was, what, 36,000 earth years. <laughs> 36,000 earth years. Uh, so he concentrated for a very long time and practiced for a long time, sitting in one place. And then he was able to, as a result of that, he was able to uh, develop attraction for the Lord, very great love of the Lord, rati. And so he has a uh, very great uh, attraction for the Lord, or rati. So he, in other words, got all success, as explained in the purport. Uh, he was able to uh, constantly think of Supreme Lord with his form. Ah, so that is indicated by the word uh, Bhagavati here, which comes from Bhagavan. Hmm? And Bhagavan literally means one who possesses Bhaga. And Bhaga means auspicious qualities or spiritual qualities. Uh, so that person who possesses all spiritual qualities, he is Bhagavan. So Bhagavan is a he has a form and he has very wonderful qualities. And uh, if one can meditate or concentrate on that form of the Lord. Uh, there's another meaning of Bhagavan, of course. Oh, two meanings, actually. Another meaning of Bhagavan is Ba, Aga, and Va. Uh, so Ba stands for Bhartra, uh, which means to maintain or nourish. So the Supreme Lord nourishes the devotee. He inspires him in all ways and helps him progress in devotion. Uh, he has a personal relationship with the devotee and helps him develop. So that's a ba. A ga stands for gamayata, one who makes one achieve. So not only he nourishes, but he supplies the goal to the devotee. He bestows the goal to the devotee. What is the goal? Prema, spiritual body, service in the spiritual world, Vaikuntha, Goloka, etc. <laughs> so he's Gamayata. He uh, takes you to the spiritual world. He gives you a spiritual body. He bestows prema. And it's Ga. Huh? And Va stands for Vas, which means to live. Huh? Uh, uh, so the Lord lives in the devotee, and the devotee lives in the Lord. Uh, so this means that uh, the uh, uh, Lord is always thinking of the devotees, and the devotees are always thinking of the Lord. 
So in this way, the Bhagavan expresses the wonderful relationship which the Lord has with his devotees. And he helps them develop, he gives them perfection, and he's always thinking of them with great attraction. In other words, Bhagavan means that the Lord falls under control of the devotee ultimately, even though he is Supreme Lord. Uh, so, uh, such an attractive figure who has affection for the devotee is naturally uh, the object of love for the devotee. Uh, we can develop an attraction for a person if the person shows affection for us. If the person doesn't show any affection, it's very difficult to develop any attraction. Yeah. But if that person shows great affection and wonderful qualities uh, uh, for us, then uh, we become very, very attracted to that person. So that is Bhagavan. Huh? The other meaning of Bhagavan, of course, is that he has those six qualities such as virya, aishvarya, uh, vairagya, jnana, etc., yasa, shri. Huh? Six wonderful qualities. Uh, which seem to indicate power, uh, uh, but of course, um, Bhaktivinoda Thakur explains that actually most all these qualities are secondary to the one quality which is Sri, which is beauty. The sweet beauty of the Lord is the main quality, and all the other qualities are secondary to that. <laughs> so again, by that we get the attractive nature of the Lord. One becomes attracted to the Lord because of his sweetness and his beauty. Yeah. Ah, so, uh, because of this, Krishna uh, Bhagavan is full of all wonderful qualities and has great affection for his devotee and is most attractive. It is very easy to become attracted to the Lord and concentrate on him. Much easier than concentrating on Nirvishesh Brahman with no qualities and no form. Yeah. Even so, I guess it's because of Kali Yuga. <laughs> Human beings find it difficult even then. <laughs> so that is why we have deities. <laughs> you don't have to imagine anything. You can develop attraction for a, a deity that you can see <laughs> in front of your eyes. And you can also serve that form as well. So that is why deity worship has been supplied to us to, so we can uh, make that attraction for the Lord a little more easy for us. And, uh, uh, develop our concentration easier. Mm. And we see even in Vrindavan, the Goswamis and the great Acharyas, they had deities as well, even though they don't really need them because they're thinking of the Lord all the time. Uh, still, uh, they serve the deities uh, and they concentrated on the deities, etc. Mm. So, uh, in uh, Nectar Devotion there, Archana, or serving the deity with great affection is one of the five principal angas of bhakti. In spite of the fact that Namsankirtan is the major anga, still uh, it's supported by deity worship. Uh, because it is, uh, it helps us very nicely uh, develop attraction for the uh, form of the Lord. Uh, uh, but even then, that's not enough for the people of Kali Yuga. Uh, because they can't even do deity worship and they can't even develop attraction for the Lord's form in the temple. Uh, so we see that most people, they have a little bit of um, a phobia <laughs> of deities, which is expressed in other religions, of course. They criticize deity worship, idol worship, and things like that. And completely. 
Uh, but even in India, many people will have a, a phobia of deities also. I think they're material forms. Uh, so uh, in this way, uh, for people in Kali Yoga, even the forms of the Lord look like they're limitations. So if God is everywhere, why do we have to put the form in the temple? Why can't he be all around us, etc.? So uh, many people also develop this uh, repulsion for a deity forms, uh, thinking that they're material, and therefore they cannot appreciate properly. So, what is the solution? How can people concentrate on the Supreme Lord? So, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was presented. Another way we can concentrate on the Lord, His name. Okay, so, oh, name is very difficult to concentrate. It's the sound, and I have to meditate on the sound. So that's made a little easier. He says, it's not just the name of the Lord, it is Sankirtan, loud chanting of the name, loud singing of the name. So you don't even have to meditate, <laughs> you just hear it with your ears. <laughs> so Chaitanya Mahaprabhu made it very easy for us. <laughs> of course, it's a trick. <laughs> yes, you just use your ears. But it is said that uh, uh, Kirtan means ultimately, we do involve the mind. Yeah? And we involve the ear and the voice. So we involve three things. Uh, with the internal sense, the mind, the ear, uh, which is the knowledge-gathering sense, and the voice, which is a karmendriya, action sense. So, so we involve uh, three senses, internal sense, uh, knowledge-gathering sense, and action sense uh, uh, together in uh, kirtan. So, uh, this is a very powerful means of ultimately coming to this goal of uh, developing attraction for the Lord, this rati. Developing attraction for the wonderful form of Krishna. And, uh, of course, being very, very steady in our practice of thinking of the Lord also. So, of course, in Nectar Devotion, Rupa Goswami says that all the rules and regulations ultimately revolve around two principles always remembering the Lord and never never forgetting him so the chanting of the name of the Lord also even though it looks like this some superficial thing with the ear actually its goal is remembrance of the Lord which is what's happening here where uh, Madhavadvaj is concentrating after for hundred is a hundred devata years <laughs> or 36,000 years he's concentrating in this way and he develops attraction to the Lord in that way. So, uh, we're not expected to do that because we don't live that long. Uh, uh, but we have an easier method and a quicker method that is uh, chanting the name of the Lord. So that's the, the, the um, compensation in our Kali Yuga <laughs> given by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And not only using Nam Sankirtan, but the name of Krishna. So in the other 9,999 Kali Yugas in the day of Brahma, uh, the Yuga avatar comes in a blackish form and he gives Nam Sankirtan. But Chaitanya Mahaprabhu comes and he gives not only Nam Sankirtan, but he gives Krishna's name. And Krishna is very special because Krishna is all attractive. He's the most attractive of all the forms of the Lord. He has the most 
wonderful qualities, superior to all the other forms of the Lord. So that makes it easier for us. Not only is Krishna the most attractive, but his name is the most attractive. Of all the different names of the Lord, the name of Krishna is easiest to concentrate on because it's the most attractive name. So, special uh, gift of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So not only concentrate on the Lord by chanting the Lord's name, but concentrate on Krishna, who is Swayam Bhagavan, the most attractive form of all. Now, that, of course, is the whole purpose of Bhagavatam, to advise everyone to worship only the form of Krishna among all the different forms. Yeah, because that's the easiest to do in Kali Yuga. <laughs> Just concentrate on Krishna. Yeah. Uh, but... Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is even more clever than that and more merciful than that because he not only tells us to get Krishna and get Krishna through the name of the Lord but he also encourages us to realize Radha and Krishna and Madhurya Rasa which is the highest aspect of Krishna and the most blissful aspect of Krishna. So not only do we get the most uh, attractive form of the Lord Krishna we also get the most blissful form of Krishna in his relationship with Radharani. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu also gives that. And when we say Hare, then we're calling out to Radha. So through Sankirtan, we not only get Krishna, but we get the bonus. We get Radha as well. <laughs> so we get the highest thing of all, the highest form of Krishna, and the most blissful form of Krishna. So, uh, very, very uh, special mercy of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is there in, uh, in giving us the Hare Krishna mantra. Uh, so in any case, the... Um, whole process is by Nam Sankirtan, we can concentrate the mind on Krishna and Radha and Krishna, so that uh, when we leave our body, then uh, we'll be, because we're concentrating on Krishna during our life, then when we pass out of our body, we're always also thinking of Radha and Krishna, rather than um, human forms, or whatever, or deer form, or dog form, or cat form, or whatever we're attached to in the material world. <laughs> so that is why uh, every morning we look at the form of the Lord. Huh? Uh, you wake up, and then you go to Mongol RT and look at the form of the Lord, instead of looking at some form in the newspaper or on television or whatever, somebody's form. <laughs> huh? Look at the form of the Lord, stick that in your mind early in the morning. Huh? And that kind of purifies your vision all day long. And, and not just once, but every day you do that. <laughs> think of the form of the Lord every morning, every morning, every morning. So seeing, and then we think of it. Uh, so we, we have the form, then we see it, and we think of that form. Well, but not only that, then we also chant the name of the Lord every day, regularly. Along with the seeing the form of the Lord. <laughs> so along with the, the, the visual aspect, we get the kirtan. And we hear the, chant the name of the Lord and we hear the name of the Lord. So that's a very powerful combination to stick the Lord in our mind and keep the form of the Lord in our mind. Yeah. Uh, so we do that also daily. Yeah. So this is a, a, say an, an assurance or a practice which uh, assures us that uh, when we leave our body we'll also be thinking of the Supreme Lord and creates a strong impression on us. Uh, the only drawback is that during the day and due to previous 
experiences in this lifetime and in previous lifetime, we got obstructions to interrupt our thinking of the Lord. If we didn't have these anartas, it would be very easy just to develop, think of Krishna every day, no problem. But we do have the anartas, the obstacles that come up, <laughs> which may be from previous lifetimes or from this lifetime. So that will obstruct our thinking of the Lord. And thus, we have to go through stages called anartanavritti. <laughs> and in the anartanavritti stage, we don't think steadily of the Lord. That stage is called anishtata, not steady. When we practice enough and the anarthas get less and less, then it's called nishta, which means steady. As we see here, uh, the king, uh, he, for his uh, hundred years of the demigods, he was sitting in one place. and <laughs> He developed steadiness in his practice through that. And he developed rati for the Lord, attraction for the Lord. So, uh, we at least have to come to the steady stage from the unsteady stage where the anartas, even though they're present, do not cause a big obstruction to us. So we can at least steadily or regularly fulfill our vows in terms of chanting and other things. So, uh, we start out unsteady with a lot of anartas and as we practice bhakti, the anartas become less and less until we get to nishta. In nishta stage, the anartas are not all gone, but they're not strong enough or uh, numerous enough to create a big obstacle for us, so we can at least practice steadily. And if we continue to practice bhakti, those anartas also get smaller and smaller and smaller until we come to ruchi, then asakti, and then rati, which is bhava stage, where you can actually see the Lord. <laughs> the, Lord becomes, the spiritual form of the Lord becomes visible at which stage it's no longer necessary to practice because we see the spiritual form directly with our spiritual eye so there's no necessity of practice because we're very attracted to the Lord at that stage and then the last just disappear very quickly at that stage so for us then we do have to Practice. This is called sadhana or abhyas. And therefore, we have to do it regularly. Abhyas means repetition. <laughs> do it again and again and again. So that's why we have daily practice. And uh, if we do daily practice, which is nishtata or steady, then that is a healthy stage. The previous stage is unsteady, so not so good. But if we continue to practice, we get to the nishta stage very nicely. Hmm? And then we progress beyond that. Uh, uh, so that is the, the, the typical way or the, the standard way in which we uh, develop our bhakti for the Lord. Hmm. It turns from bhakti uh, in sadhana, it turns to bhava or rati, then it turns to prema, which is the goal. Hmm. The, now the anartas will go away, but... There's one problem there, which will, so that our narthas don't go away. <laughs> and that is aparad. <laughs> so we have offenses, and this will slow the anarthanavriti, or maybe stop the anarthanavriti, so that the anarthas continue and continue, and they cause more and more problems for us. So that makes uh, devotional service does not progress when that takes place. So that is why we have to avoid the, anarth- the uh, aparad. Huh? 
So the, 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 the seed of aparad is, uh, not the accidental aparad, but the intentional aparad, is some sort of unfavorable attitude towards the Lord and the devotees and bhakti. When that starts appearing, then this will obstruct the purifying aspect of bhakti so that the inartas don't go away. In fact, the inartas may start increasing again. Yeah. So therefore we have to be careful that that unfavorable attitude never enters into our bhakti. Yeah. Uh, and we can safeguard that by being in the association of devotees. Yeah. Uh, so, in any case, uh, we have to concentrate on the practice and do it properly, and then we get the nice result. In Nectar, um, Chaitanya Charitamrita, or Chaitanya Mahaprabhu gives the example of planting the seed cultivating that seed, letting it sprout, and then making it grow. It doesn't grow by itself. <laughs> it needs very careful attention. And who, who's the attentive person? The gardener. And who's the gardener? The devotee. So each devotee is responsible to cultivate his seed of bhakti. And he can't pass that responsibility onto somebody else. Yeah? The gardener has to take care of his own garden <laughs> and uh, cultivate and sprout the seed and help it develop. And if he doesn't do so, he's irresponsible and the plant will wither and die. So bhakti is a special plant and as all special plants, they, don't, they need some care. Some plants don't need care. Those are called weeds. <laughs> So weeds grow up very nicely without doing anything. <laughs> so in this way you can also grow weeds in your garden of the heart and develop all sorts of anarchists without having to do anything. <laughs> all the uh, material desires and stuff spring up automatically. <laughs> so that's what we, why we have to cultivate very carefully the plant of bhakti. It won't grow automatically. We have to take care of it very nicely. Huh? And if we don't, then these other things grow up. The weeds grow up instead. So, uh, care has to be taken in the cultivation of bhakti. So, therefore, we have um, stages and we have rules and regulations, etc., uh, and advice on how to cultivate the bhakti. So, basically, it's steady, a steady practice or a better practice. Just as in the garden, uh, you have to regularly water, and give the sunlight or whatever regularly, etc. You have to do everything very regularly. And, uh, not do it irregularly. Uh, and you have to know what is nourishing for the plant, what is not nourishing for the plant. Yeah. So uh, the scriptures give us what is favorable for bhakti and what is unfavorable for bhakti. So we avoid the unfavorable things and we do the favorable things, favorable activities, those activities which make the bhakti creeper grow. Uh, so uh, we follow the instructions very carefully and we get the result. Uh, so that is why we do need some reference for our practice. It is not this free practice, uh, do what you want, but rather it is uh, specific practices we do, which are referred to in the scriptures. So that is why we also have to study scripture, so we know just what to do and how to do it. <laughs> and of course, the books themselves are good, but not everything, just as uh, you can... You can learn gardening from a book, I suppose, but 
if you have an experienced gardener, you get some extra wisdom from him. <laughs> or if you want to learn medicine, you can learn from the book, but that doesn't make you a good doctor. <laughs> you also have to take the course and get some good surgeons and other people to give you good advice on how to do an operation. <laughs> then you can become a good doctor. Yeah. So there's also the personal touch involved. So that's why we have the sadhu sangha. So we have scripture and sadhu sangha to guide our cultivation of the bhakti creeper. Yet, the gardener is responsible ultimately. Each devotee is responsible for his own bhakti. And he has to cultivate it. So we follow that process and then we get the proper result. As we see here in the case of King Mala Dwaja. Okay, any question? Example is given by I think Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur. There's a nice, there's a grass, a weed actually that grows in Bengal called Shamgach, which literally means dark grass, I guess, Shamgach. <laughs> but it looks like rice when it grows up. So if you're an ignorant farmer, you'll cultivate the weed and you'll think, my, my crop of rice is growing very nicely. And you cultivate it and water it and it grows up very quickly. And you get enthusiastic, oh, I'll have a big crop of rice this year. And you wait and wait and wait for the rice to come out. <laughs> Nothing comes out because it's a weed. <laughs> so the expert farmer has to distinguish between shamgach and the actual rice sprout and <laughs> see that the, the, you've got the proper thing there. And the fool who doesn't know, then he grows the weed and he ends up with no rice at all. <laughs> so similarly, we cultivate bhakti, but if you don't know what bhakti is, then we cultivate the weeds and we think it's bhakti. And ultimately, all we end up with with no result of bhakti at all. We don't progress at all. We end up with all these material desires and material results. <laughs> so we have to be able to distinguish. One, of course, how do we distinguish? Is you've got to use your mind to some degree, your intelligence. And then you have to need scripture to understand the, what is the characteristics of bhakti as opposed to you know, karma and jnana and everything else and material results. Huh? And, as I said, um, generally we can go by the book, and if we're very intelligent, maybe we can see, but sometimes we get a little confused, so therefore we also need devotee, expert devotee, to tell us that that's not the, good, that's not the proper result. This is all material. And then we have to you know, follow the advice of devotees to distinguish what is bhakti and what is not bhakti. Hmm? Now, one thing is that that's called trangarangani. This is one sign of the neophyte mentioned in Madhurya Kanamani of Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur. He mentions six signs of a uh, anishtata bhakta, one who is in the stage of unsteadiness. So one is called Tarangarangani, which means playing in the waves, mm-hmm. like people play in the ocean, the surfers and stuff. They're playing around in the waves like that. It's called Tarangarangani. Uh, uh, so what this means is that uh, when we perform bhakti, we get some results. Of course, the real result is we get more bhakti. But the external result may be 
assets, followers, worship, etc. So we may identify that as the result of bhakti, that we get these things, and we think this is, therefore I'm progressing because I'm getting these results. <laughs> I'm doing my bhakti and I'm getting followers, people are listening to me. I'm getting recognition. They're praising me for my next nice lectures or whatever. Uh, I, I'm uh, getting a lot of uh, donations or whatever <laughs> to buy something for Krishna. So then we think, therefore, because I'm getting all these donations and getting all these followers, therefore I must be a great devotee. I must be advancing. So definitely, when you do advance in devotional service, you will get these things as secondary results. But sometimes you may not advance and you get those results also due to good karmas and whatever. So it's not the necessary, it's not the, the deciding factor in your advancement. It's a, a secondary thing which may or may not indicate bhakti. So uh, a neophyte may misidentify and when he gets these things, may, may think this is, I'm advancing in bhakti <laughs> because of these things. These are my sign of advancement. And if we rely totally on that, then we can end up with a miserable result because uh, our bhakti is not advancing at all. So we have to be very careful of that. So, and then we enjoy those results. That's the tarangarangani, enjoying the results of the waves, <laughs> like that. So uh, we start enjoying those things also. Not only we identify, we start enjoying them as well. So then we end up with the big problems as a result of that. So... Uh, we do have to uh, distinguish the, you know, the real result from the a real goal that we're trying to achieve in terms of advancement from the external manifestations uh, and not equate the two. So it's like form and substance. <laughs> so we have the external form of something and then we have the substance of it, just like a, a singer can sing all the notes, the correct notes, and even the correct ornaments and everything. But if they don't have the correct feeling, then it's still not the correct song, you know? <laughs> or someone can play the piano very nice, all the things. But they don't accept it as a great pianist because somehow the... the the result, the feeling is not there, the, you know, that you should feel is not there. So uh, in bhakti we can do the same things, we can do all the activities, but at the same time if the feeling's not there, then it's not real bhakti. Of course it's of value for the devotee because, uh, you know, even accidental chanting of the name it destroys all your karmas, etc. But to really advance then we should not take just that form, that is the activities themselves, but the devotion or the affection for Krishna must be involved in that. So when we're chanting, we have to have affection for Krishna or try to have, uh, show our service to Krishna in that. Then it becomes very powerful to help us advance, to destroy the anarchists, etc. But if it's not there, it becomes a weaker form. It's not, there's nothing wrong with it in one sense because you know, any type of bhakti is good as long as there's some favorable attitude. But if we do have that uh, favorable that affection in our uh, relationship with uh, doing the activity, then it becomes very powerful, and we can advance easier that way. 
So we should not forget that when we do the practices. Of course, in the beginning stage, we struggle just to do the activities properly <laughs> in a regulated way. So good if we can do it regularly, but then we should again go back and start concentrating on the devotional aspect of it. Then it becomes, uh, say, more inspiring for us and more tasteful for us. And if you have a taste, then it's easier to do the activities. How do we feel it? Well, it's reciprocal. You show affection for the Lord, or the Lord shows affection for you. Uh, we can't just wait, okay, the Lord has to show me affection, he shows affection, I'll show affection for him. So <laughs> we don't want to make a deal like that. So as a devotee, we accept the fact, okay, the Lord is all wonderful and all attractive and all affectionate. So I'll endeavor to do something for him, for his pleasure finished. And we don't expect anything. But the nature of the Lord is he will be very moved by that attempt on our part, and he will respond in some way. So we don't expect it, but then he will respond. And um, if we are, say, attentive or aware, uh, then we can realize the response. If we're not attentive, of course, we may not even realize that he is responding. (laughs) But if we're very attentive, then we can understand he's responding in a certain way. By meditating on those services. Yeah, yeah. well, so eagerness for a service, that's a favorable attitude. And uh, if, if we're uh, about to do the service and we have an attraction for doing that, that helps us, you know, and, and it's like a meditation. Uh, the, uh, as um, is mentioned here, Krishna Bhakti Kwale Sarvakama Kritahoi. We have a, a, that's actually a definition of faith that we understand that by doing something for Krishna, everything becomes successful. <laughs> so that, that, that's an attitude of faith that if I do this for Krishna, uh, just thinking of Krishna, that's it. <laughs> that's the perfection of life. So to have that faith when we're, before we're doing and while we're doing the activity, that helps us advance. Yeah, because it's so difficult to concentrate on the formless for most people. They say, first of all, let us concentrate on a material form of a devata or Vishnu. They take them all as material. And once we've concentrated enough on those forms and we get purified in sattva 
then we can start giving up those forms and just meditate on Brahman itself, which is formless, which is more difficult to do. But if you're in sattva, then you can do that. But before that, very difficult to do. So that helps us get purified and become steady in sattva. So that is our like functional for purification in the material world. But at a certain point, we give up those forms. Yeah, well, there's two ways in which we can have material desires. One is we can mix those material desires with our devotional service, and then it's not pure bhakti, it's mixed bhakti. <laughs> and that will cause us to go to Svargaloka or something like that. The other is to do pure bhakti and not mix those desires with our bhakti. In other words, we're doing our bhakti and chanting. We're not thinking, I want to get some material result now, or I want to go to Svargaloka. But... Still, we do have desires or whatever. We still have an art or whatever. But we're not mixing that with our bhakti. So that is uh, pure bhakti and sadhana. And by doing that, then gradually the anarthas get less and less and less. So we reach the stage of nishta, ruchya, sakti, and then we get bhava, uh, in which the anarthas are not all gone, but almost all gone, and then we get prema. So uh, it's not pure in the literal sense when we do this type of sadhana bhakti, only the prema is pure, but nevertheless we call it pure bhakti because we're not mixing that bhakti with desires in our goal, etc. So that is the approved process. So if we uh, don't achieve perfection, maybe we get to nishta in this lifetime doing that process, then we continue next lifetime. And maybe we get to Ruchi in the next lifetime. Next life we get to Asakti. Next life we get to Bhava. Then then we get Prema. So gradually you, you get the end result finally of that highest pure Bhakti Prema and then you go to the spiritual world. Yeah? But if you follow the mixed process all along, you can, it's a slower process. And maybe you go to Svargaloka and then finally Brahma Loka. And then you could even go to Vaikuntha and get Salokya and Sarupya. But you won't develop Prema. And you maybe get Shantarasa, but no Prema. The Lord will purify you ultimately, but you won't get that higher result of uh, Prema. Were well, you saying a material or spiritual then? Uh, our attraction to the Lord? Yeah, if the basis of attraction is what is pleasing to my senses. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, um, it may be difficult for us to detect what is what when we're neophytes or beginning devotional service uh, uh, because uh, our material senses are kind of interfering with everything. <laughs> so we may like Krishna because we like his ornaments or something, and then we, or you may like Rama because of his complexion. I like green rather than I like blue or black. <laughs> so we may have just material preferences there or, you know, of color or whatever. Or activities. I, I don't like all these sweet activities of Krishna. I like fighting instead, so I like Nishramadev instead. So that could be a you know, material basis in many cases. However, on a higher level again, uh, one may be attracted to a form of the Lord because uh, you have a spiritual attraction for some of these different rasas. You may, you may have more attraction for the, the, the kingly type rasas than the sweet rasas of Krishna or whatever. That could also be a spiritual attraction. Uh, but that's a more advanced level. So on the beginning stage, we can't really tell. It may be that previous lifetime, you had developed some attraction already, spiritual attraction for a certain form of the Lord, so therefore that manifests in this lifetime also, even if we're at a neophyte stage in this lifetime. So we can't always distinguish. Uh, but in any case, if we are attracted, even for material reasons, to the particular form of the Lord or his pastime, etc., we do our sadhana and just go on and on and on. If the attraction stays there, then that can develop into a spiritual attraction eventually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, some had jobs, some were brahmanas, uh, uh, and of course, at that time, uh, many, even the brahmanas, uh, they had land, etc., so they could support themselves, whatever. Others were not so rich, like um, Lord Chaitanya, his father was not so rich and so wealthy, or whatever. Others may have been wealthier. Uh, like uh, Advaita Charya didn't have any problem well, with his uh, money like that. And some were, of course, not Brahmins. They were Kshatriyas or Vaishyas or whatever. And they had their jobs also. Some were doctors, whatever. Uh, some were landowners. As Raghunath Das's family was a wealthy family like that. So uh, they, of course, they still did their duties as Brahmins. They may be teachers or whatever. Or as, uh, you know, landowners, they have to take care of their land, etc. But they allotted their time nicely so that they did their Bhakti as well. Like a here in the the the, the uh, thirty six thousand years or something here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, our TOVP just answered all those questions. TOVP. <laughs> I don't know if they'll do it or not, but hopefully they'll give some sort of answer to that. Uh, the other thing, of course, is uh, scripture is one sort of pramana, so we accept it. And the acharyas, you know, they comment on the fifth canto, but they don't say how it's like that or why it's like that or whatever like that. They say, okay, that's it. <laughs> uh, so 
in the modern world than uh, with the development of science. They have a particular way of seeing things and analyzing things, and so their result looks quite different in terms of universe and dimensions, etc. It looks quite different. Uh, previously, uh, there wasn't so much visible difference because they just accepted the concepts in the scripture. But since we do have the independent observation of material science nowadays, which everybody believes in, then it looks quite different. Okay? So what is the solution? Uh, how to correlate the two things? It may be difficult, but one idea is that the material perception of scientists, though they consider it very accurate, is also a relative thing. It's just relative to our particular human condition. And if the ETs or whoever are up there on other planets and other universes or whatever, wherever they're coming from, you know, uh, are to observe, and they're also material, they would see things quite differently from us. And space and time will be quite different also. And distance will be quite different. What to speak of? A sage on the spiritual level, he will see things very different from that also. So we should think that the Bhagavatam is written from that, the sage's perspective or Krishna's perspective. And it's quite different from how us and our limited vision on earth are speaking, looking at things. And it's also different from what living entities in other universes probably may be thinking, who are maybe 20 million years advanced over us or you know, so many thousands of years in advance. They will think differently. And even we are thinking differently from the people 2,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago. And 2,000 years from now in the future, people will be thinking quite differently from what we're thinking of and they'll see distance and time quite differently again. So as I said, it's all relative in one sense. We think, why is this so contrary now? But as we go on, <laughs> probably the differences will start decreasing and there will be some correlate, more correlation between what Scripture says and what people, how common people and scientists perceive the world and time and space. As time goes on, the, the distance, the, two, the disparity will narrow and narrow. That's, not, that's my prediction anyway. <laughs> As even with quantum physics, the, that's created a big problem for science because they want to accept it, but they, it's so contrary to the rational type of you know, limited time and space and all that. So they, they can't correlate the two things. When they do solve that problem, then probably... Bhagavadam will be more acceptable to people. <laughs> Thank you for class. I was, um, when I first heard there was 8.4 million species, I thought that was, like, how would you come up with such an yeah. estimate? Species. Okay, it's smaller. Small yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Okay. Okay, that's interesting. Of course, the other thing is that I think 400,000 of those species are human species, <laughs> which we can't see, like devatas and demons and ghosts and Brahma and all the rishis up there that we can't even see them. So we've got you know, a, a point, four point of those species that science can't see yet. So maybe that accounts for them, <laughs> the extra species. 
Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, like the Bhagavatam, we can say it's kind of a flat earth theory of senses. Uh, it's not actually the earth, though. It's the whole Bhumandala, which is flat. Huh? It's the, it, where our so-called uh, Varsha is the earth, to speak, and it's part of the, the Jambudweep which is with the Mount Meru in the middle, and then we have an ocean, then we have a, a dweepa, another island, then we have another ocean, then we have another island, an ocean, like that, which spreads out uh, and goes to the edge of our particular universe with its shell. So in that sense, it's kind of flat, or at least curved. It's not like this. Huh? And uh, how to locate our Earth, which we see through our satellites, which looks globular <laughs> or spherical or whatever, uh, so that's a problem for many people, and uh, I think uh, Danavir Goswami gave one solution with like a, a pig type of earth stuck on top of Varsha or something like that. That was one theory. And then Mayashwar, he said he dismissed that theory. He said this is all nonsense like this. Uh, and he goes back to you know, the flat earth theory, kind of like that, the flat earth thing. Uh, so we will have, because we're trying to correlate things with our modern science and their observations, then we come up with this problem. But as I said, even if we see things pictorially, they bring back photographs of a, of, of a round earth, not a flat earth, from a satellite or whatever, or you take the moon or whatever, it looks spherical also. So uh, it looks like it's a contradiction, but again, even our, our, our photo, photographic thing and our conception of three-dimensional space, which causes us to see things in, as spheres or whatever, it's, it's a relative concept again, as far as I can see, with our particular time. So if we get beyond these uh, limitations of our time and space, then it won't look so contrary. And flat earth versus spherical earth won't be such a controversy anymore. <laughs> It just be different ways of seeing things from different points of view and different limited vision or more expanded vision, that's all. <laughs> well, we do have even in Bhagavatam it says Bugola, and a gola is usually a sphere, so he says that in one place. But then, again, as I say, we can, how do we correlate the gola aspect or the spherical aspect with the Bumandala aspect, which is a flat type thing, you know? That's, that's where the problem lies, so. And I think also in things like Surya Siddhanta, they accept a more or less spherical Earth also in their calculations. I could be wrong, but I think some people, some people claim that. Are there different dimensions that we can't see that the eye Yeah, well, mathematics says, I think, seven or nine dimensions, or at least five or six. So yeah, it's hard for us to conceive of what those dimensions are and how we could perceive those things. It's very difficult for us, you know, but... Uh, up, up to, uh, and of course, it's very interesting because in our theory, at least, you know, we have uh, like nine directions. <laughs> eight, eight directions like this, east, west, north, south, and plus we up and down, so we get nine directions. So it kind of correlates with mathematical dimensions, nine dimensions or something like that. <laughs> so, but how, how to visualize that for us? Impossible. But if you were a sage, a rishi, or a yogi, then probably you could see things like that. Maybe not nine, maybe five or six, like that. And then you could get more dimensions. But that's, of course, the material world. If you were taken from Krishna's point of view, spiritual, then of course it's 
dimensions are what what are the dimensions are <laughs> again it's very difficult to understand it all from the spiritual point of view because that's beyond dimensions how krishna sees the world flat round whatever doesn't you know kind of meaningless so it says it depends on our vision and uh, how how we extend our vision and ultimately spiritual vision so it doesn't really matter anyway from the spiritual point of view because it's all insignificant like a dot in the dot of you know, a bubble in the ocean or something it doesn't really matter anymore <laughs> okay Hare Krishna